see, blue jeans, Birkenstocks, it was 81 on Friday. As far as I'm concerned, that's summer. And um, hopefully uh, we'll be either here or in the amphitheater soon. Just be patient. We're talking to people. We're working on plans. Uh, we're only going to be allowed to have 10 people in the amphitheater, so we're going to uh, bid on the t- first 10 tickets. Whoever gives the most money. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're going to figure out how to get us there. And we have people in the, in the government here helping us. So just be patient with us. We're going to figure it out. Well, today we're um, starting uh, a new summer, a series for the summer called A Different Kind of Faith. Okay? A Different Kind of Faith. Imagine with me, and this is why we chose the uh, image that we did. If I could capture Christianity in one concept, it's this right here. God is extending an open hand. He's extending to us an open hand to invite us into a deeper relationship with him. And not only with him, but with our surrounding culture, uh, all the people that we care about, whether they come to our churches or not. We love them because they belong to us. Um, That's one of the things that is very unique about Christianity. So I'm starting with a whole series of questions. What What would it look like for God to extend his hand? What would it look like from the perspective of the people that don't know him? What do you think it would look like from their perspective? Would it be gracious? Would it be harsh, demanding, alluring, lots of rules? What would it look like? What could God possibly offer that would make his relationship with us different and distinguishable? So that our friends and neighbors can see something, something that's attractive. What would that look like? In what ways are we like other religions and philosophies? How are we different? Why is it important? Why does it matter? I think it matters a great deal. You see, everything, um, I believe everything in society, all around the world, doesn't matter where you are, everything is impacted by religious beliefs, politics, economics, um, sociology, the way we treat one another, anthropology, the way we form nations and people groups. It's all impacted by religious beliefs. You see, religion helps us understand the material and the immaterial world better. The, to me, the primary test of any religious system or philosophy is, does it make more sense of what I experience in life? Does it help me to understand it? Uh, even atheism, by the way, I'm going to put in this group. It's its own form of religion. They can say they don't believe in God, but they believe in something, some kind of faith, as far as I'm concerned. So a review, if you stop, I'm sure most of you, probably by now you're, If you're experiencing Zoom fatigue, you're probably experiencing social media fatigue as well. I get it. I'm with you. I I enjoy reading it every day, but even I'm getting tired of it. Um, And you look through social media, you look at the media, you look at the headlines. I I personally think it's very intriguing that two weeks ago, every article was about COVID-19. And now every article is about protests and things like that. And I'm not sure that's bad. It just reveals what uh, what the media is all about. Let's be honest. It's always been about money. What's going to sell something? I get it. And so you look through there and you look through all of this stuff. And I have several, to me, very striking observations. One is that religious beliefs usually underlie how we interpret and interact with our surrounding culture. What we believe about things. Okay. 
It underlies all of this. Religious beliefs often dictate how we evaluate and perceive our political leaders. I think it's just a blast with a church that is a community church where we have everybody on every political spectrum there is. When I have coffees and talk to people, yes, I'm now having coffees in person again. In fact, I had coffee with Dan Hendershot this week. Starbucks doesn't let you sit out. We got our coffee and sat, stood in the parking lot in the sun and just drank our coffee. It was so great just to sit there six feet apart having our conversation. And um, when I'm talking to people, everybody's evaluating what's happening through different lenses. But these lenses are often religiously focused because we want to understand the things that we can't see. We can't make sense of. I think religious beliefs are often a contributing cause of violent conflict around the world. I'm not going to get into the Black Lives Matter, but all over social media, everybody has a different take. And it often comes back to a religious belief or a philosophy of what's important and what's not important and why we should be doing what we're doing or not doing it. Political leaders often use some form of religious belief to support whatever decision they're making. Um, I don't always know if that's what they believe or if they're just catering to people that have religious beliefs, but you hear the language. I was reading an article this week from a professor who every every class he has his students uh, take one edition of the Wall Street Journal and read it from cover to cover and mark up how many times religion is discussed and they are astounded at how thoroughly integrated it is into our system and we don't even realize it. So religion is very important. What's most striking to me is that the very religions designed to promote peace and goodwill, including Christianity, often create the very opposite. We fight and argue over things. We like putting aisles right down the middle and taking sides, don't we? It's as natural as breathing in a fallen world. In our own history, now this series is not about American history, but I'm using us as an example to get to what I want to talk about regarding God and the Bible. In our own history, we have mixed results regarding religion. It's easy for us to sit here today and and enjoy a lot of freedom around religion, but that hasn't always been true. The fight for religious freedom was one of the longest, bloodiest fights there was. In fact, I'm reading a book by Stephen Waldman called Sacred Liberty, America's Long, Bloody, and Ongoing Struggle for Religious Freedom. One of my good friends, this is his area of expertise, said, if I only had one book to read, what would it be? He goes, here it is right here. And I've just been enjoying this book immensely. But here are some of the things in our own history, how religion has played a part. Now, we look at it today, we're going, what? Really? But it's so hard to change culture. One of the questions I get all the time, we're going to get into this in this series, is why did God take so long to, for instance, eliminate genocide, eliminate rape, eliminate all these things? Why didn't he just give us a rule book and say, don't do it? Well, you know, we passed the Civil Rights Amendment in 1964. We still haven't figured it out. And we want to. It took a thousand years to get some of these things out of Israel's history. Well, here's a little bit of our history. In the 17th century, Massachusetts hanged people for being Quakers. Isn't that amazing? When the Declaration of Independence was signed, nine of the 13 colonies barred, legally barred Catholics and Jews from holding office. In 1938, uh, uh, no, that's not correct. It must be 1838. The governor of Missouri issued Executive Order 44 calling for the extermination of Mormons. 
As slaves were brought into America, they were often stripped of their liberty and their African religions. And there was whole programs put in place to reorient their children around whatever form of Christianity was in the local region. After the Civil War, the U.S. government banned many of the Native American spiritual practices. On and on and on it goes. The, the, we just didn't sit down and write a constitution that says we're going to have religious freedom. It didn't work that way. Because at the very heart of culture are people. It takes a long time to convince people to think a little differently. It really does. And yet, on the other side of it, as we have learned to navigate religious freedom, some good things have happened as well. Um, religion led to the efforts to ban slavery, for example. Uh, religion get, led the efforts to gain the women the right to vote, combat poverty, and many other things. So we could, we could easily put on both sides of the column as we're navigating this very complex issue uh, how to do it. You see, God has a tremendous challenge. The moment Adam and Eve decided to sin, man, oh man, changing people's ways of thinking is very difficult. I'm familiar with all the philosophical arguments on the existence of God, but you know what convinces me of God? Watching people change right in front of my eyes and begin to take a different course. Our own founding fathers felt the tension around freedom of religion. James Madison was the primary founding father who fought the hardest for religious liberty. But the Amendment 14 didn't happen until 100, 150 years after he died, which gave us all equal rights. So he fought hard. He argued that the best way to promote religion was to simply leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Uh, the more we try to control it, the more we restrict our religious freedoms. But in contrast, Patrick Henry fought to develop governmental controls. Felt we needed to do that. The various governors of the various colonies all had different perspectives. And I read some of those to you earlier. But what they all agreed on, here's what they all agreed on. Religious liberty was necessary that, and to lead to economic and cultural vitality. Religious liberty was necessary. If you take that away, then you remove economic and cultural vitality. Because our Constitution says everyone has the right to the pursuit of happiness. Aristotle's the first one, I believe, that used that language. And he argued that everyone has the right to happiness. And our forefathers changed it. And they said, no, not everyone has the right. Everyone has the right to pursue it. And religious liberty was the linchpin on what would make that possible. That's how it would approach. Okay, in our country, our history is very long, confusing, convoluted, just in the United States. Now, if you read world history, it's, it's amazing how, how this is. I love Psalm 2. God sits up there and laughs at the nations as we try to figure it out. My, one of my basic core theological principles is very simple. Culture is always going to lead us off the cliff. Always. Many, many philosophers along the way, C.S. Lewis, many others have argued, oh, we have, a, we have a moral compass that's just broken. We're always searching for true north. And we can never find it. And so it's always going to lead us off the cliff unless God intervenes with truth with wisdom. 
Rodney Stark, one of my favorite, uh, I think he's a cultural anthropologist, but anyway, he's, he actually started out to, uh, with his dissertation to prove that Christianity was the pain of all evil. And he came, uh, became a Christian through that because they said, yeah, we got a lot of skeletons in our closet, but man, we've done some really good things. So he identified why religious movements either succeed or fail. He studied all the great movements that, you, we, can, that we can study in history. And he came up with uh, what, he, what he calls um, 10 observations, 10 reasons why they either succeed or fail. Two of them are important for us as we move into the summer. Number one, successful religions retain some level of continuity with this cultural setting. In other words, it has to attract converts. Cults don't attract converts. They may attract a very small group. But a successful worldwide religion has to have something in common that's attractive. If we're completely alien or incomprehensible, people are going to avoid it. That's important for us to remember as a church, to identify what actually do we have in common. We live in the same space with our friends and neighbors, our business owners. Throughout this COVID-19, one of the things that we've done is we've gone to some of the business owners and said, let us help you. They're trying to keep their employees uh, funded through this and said, let us help you. If your employees are in trouble with their mortgage payments or whatever, come to their food bank, come to our benevolence and uh, we'll help out. That's, we have something in common. We want to enjoy life. But he said there's another principle that's in contrast to that. Successful religions, religious movements also maintain some level of tension. In other words, we become countercultural. Because people down in the very core, they know there's something better out there. Otherwise, why join? Why come to a church? We just become a social club if we're no different. The moment we remove Jesus from the teaching, and the moment we remove our theology, and we just want to help people, that's good. But we just become another social club. We're no longer a religious movement. So we're always walking that line between these two things. So the history of Christianity changing the world is very long. It's confusing. It's bloody. It involves a lot of sacrifices, sometimes on the part of individuals, sometimes compromise. It's nothing clean about it. And when we look through the scriptures, we're going to see that that is true. What I want to focus on are the factors that make Christianity unique and attractive. Okay. In comparative studies, it's very common to look at how we agree with the rest of the world. What I want to look is, when God extended his hand, his open hand, what did he offer that is unique? Why would people want to join Christianity? If we can answer that question, then we have the very core of what evangelism looks like. We could see why the crowds flocked to Jesus. What did he offer that was unique, that distinguishes us? So I want to focus on those factors right there. But in order to grasp those factors, it'll be helpful if you understand what the world was like. If you just simply read the Old Testament, boy, it looks harsh. God looks very demanding. One of the things I love to do in the classroom is ask my students, tell me the adjectives you would use to describe the law. You know what they come up with? Harsh, unforgiving, demanding, and yet uh, impossible. And yet David, over and over again, Psalm 119, for example, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. All but two verses mention the law. I love your law, O Lord. What did Paul say? It's holy, it's right, it's good, it's perfect. So they obviously saw something 
that we haven't seen in modern day time. And I think the answer lies in understanding the culture in which he gave it. Then you could see how God is redemptive. So we're going to go back and just do a little bit of study to set the groundwork on what the world was like. Okay, it was a very contentious, disoriented, superstitious world when God decided to intervene. Let's look at the biblical record itself. We have Genesis chapter 6. As a result of the fall, evil began to grow and increase. Genesis 6, just before the flood, verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, we'll come back to this in just a second, but we hold up all the great civilizations as success. And yet we have a statement here that uh, the heart, the inclination of our hearts is evil all the time. What does this mean when compared to the way we evaluate civilization? But he goes on. So the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So he said, I will deep, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Boy, that sounds harsh. But then all of a sudden you see grace shine through. But Noah, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's always the way you see it. When God acts, he always ends up somehow revealing grace. When we move over to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch. And they're just getting ready to enter the promised land. They're not in the promised land yet. And so this is these are Moses' kinds of last words uh, reminding them because he's not allowed to go into the promised land. So here's what he says. God knew what was going to happen. Deuteronomy 31 verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared to, at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. You see, God, he knew. So then we pass on through Joshua, where they conquer, they kind of subdue the land into the period of Judges. Judges is known by the phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no leadership now. Joshua's gone. And here's what he says in Judges chapter 2. Right at the beginning of the book. Verse 10. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Uh, so verse 8, Joshua had just died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done in Israel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook, that's one of the gods of Canaan. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And he knew what was going to happen. And yet in the midst of this, in the period of Judges, it was when Ruth and Naomi appear in Boaz. An incredible story of redemption. In fact, the story of Ruth and Boaz is the very is the story that gives us the picture of what true redemption looks like. People are in trouble. Somebody steps in to help them. That's redemption. 
They're in, they're in a jam. They can't get out of it themselves. Somebody steps in. This is what we're trying to do with our benevolence committee. I love our benevolence committee. Uh, helping the people all around us that we live with that are in trouble. Come, let us help. Because they're in trouble for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's their own foolishness. Other times it's they've lost their jobs. Some have been furloughed because of the coronavirus thing. And we're helping them. By the way, several of you have contributed to fill the uh, fund, the uh, Benevolence Fund. Thank you for that. Very gracious, very grateful, very appreciative of that. And so right in the middle of this horrible place, we see Ruth and Naomi. So when it talks about people who are evil, does that mean that the, when every nation is evil, does that mean they're murderous and corrupt and all that? Not necessarily. What it means is they all try to do it their own way. That's the heart of Paul's argument in Romans. Okay, evil doesn't always look like evil. What's truly evil in God's eyes is I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. That's the heart of evil. It's called idolatry. I know better than God. That's the heart of the whole story. And guess what? That's your story as well. That's why it is so hard for us to truly live by faith. Because when we get down to the bottom, I know better than God. So I'm still going to lust. Still going to do all the things that the Bible says I shouldn't do. And I have a whole church full of them. In fact, I have a whole county full of them. That's the heart of what God defines as evil when he defines this world of corruption and chaos. What it means is that all of our people are really choosing more often than not to do what they think is right. I know more than God. That's idolatry. So I Psalm 2 says that God sits up there and laughs at the nations. I mean, I hope he's laughing and not crying <laughs> because he sure is patient. He allows so much to go on and he's very slow about changing it. You see that there was no guiding light to point the way to true north. The nations tried to do what was right. That's why we hold them up as great examples of civilizations. Okay, but let me just give you a sampling of some of the rules. Until God spoke, how would we know? The ancient nations all had law codes. They defined behavior, and they did bring some degree of order. They did do that can't survive in absolute chaos. As soon as you get a people group together, you have to define it. But then we begin to learn that murder was not a moral issue. It's a practical one. Until the Ten Commandments came on the scene in 1500 BC, I don't know of any example where murder was discussed from a moral perspective. Oh, we learned not to kill each other in our own tribe, our own congregation. Rob, if I murder your wife, we're going to have issues. But you and I had no issues about murdering the people on the other side of the valley. It wasn't a moral condition. Discussion until God intervened and said, you know, murder is wrong. <laughs> and, and the history is replete with these. The Egyptians had a very severe punishment code. Some of my earlier summers, I've talked about that. You could beat somebody up to 200 times with a rod and create five open wounds. There were no limits placed on how much a husband could treat a wife. Okay. And all of a sudden, in the, in the Levitical Code, we're limited to 40 lashes so that we don't create a loss of dignity. We're now beginning to treat people appropriately for whatever crime they're committing. 
All the nations had the worship of many gods. But what did they teach? We're to placate the gods, not emulate them. Our success was dependent on the gods being happy. Let's make them happy. No one had the thought that a God would come and say, I want to serve you and love you. There's that open hand. You can see it. Don't people too much. Right? You don't have to placate me. Let me, I came to, Jesus codified it, Mark 10. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. No other God does that. That's that God, our God, reaching out with an open hand in the midst of a very chaotic world. Women were very mistreated, usually viewed as property, all over the ancient world. It's not until we get to that, the Levitical Code, the, uh, the Mosaic Law, that we begin to see dignity brought in. And then all of a sudden we have these stories. If you read Proverbs 31, for example, the virtuous woman. It's amazing in that culture. She has her own businesses that are successful and she's praised for that. She sells them and uses that to feed the poor. You read that and it's like this is a stunning language in the ancient world. And examples of, of God reaching out and helping somebody, uh, this woman, to be successful, and then she turns around and blesses others with it. That's stunning. That's God opening that hand. Ah, children had no value, none whatsoever in the ancient world. They were the lowest on the low, below the slaves, because a child could bring dishonor on your family, and then your business failed. So children, um, they weren't treated very well. They certainly weren't valued. So when Jesus took a little child and held him, the disciples tried to get the child away. He said, no, 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 no. You want to become like me? You want to enter the kingdom and have a faith like this child? And all of a sudden, women, I mean children, begin to grow in value. There's, that, there's our God giving us that open hand. Something different that the world could not conceive of. Slaves were mistreated, okay? And all of a sudden we get into the New Testament, right? Slaves obey your masters. But then what does he say to the masters? Love your slaves. Treat them fairly. There's that open hand. Something unique that the world couldn't figure out. The household codes, starting with Aristotle. Okay, we have that, we have that covered in 1 Peter and in Ephesians 5. Right? Wives, obey your husbands. Children, obey your fathers. Slaves, obey your masters. That's a basic code of the ancient world. Who's that protecting the husband, the father, and the slave owner was always the same man. Aristotle developed those codes to begin to bring order to society, but it protected the man. Okay? So then Mark, I mean, uh, Paul comes along and repeats that code, but then he turns it around. It says, husbands, love your wives. Sacrifice for them like Christ did. That is countercultural. That's stunning in that world. There's the Lord opening that hand on new relationships. Fathers, don't exasperate your children to anger. Stunning. Slave, I mean masters, love your slaves and treat them fairly. There's that open hand. Christianity is introducing something that's countercultural. Something that makes everybody around there stop and say, I want that. I want that. How'd you, where'd you get this idea from? That is the heart of Christianity is God opening a hand and offering us something that we can't see otherwise. We can't get to it. 
These nations are all held up as examples of great civilizations. What makes it evil? At the very core, they're saying, I know better than God. And the history of religious intervention by God is just the opposite. God knows better than we do. And when we listen, life is so wonderful. So the very first concept to enter into this world, and we'll develop this in different ways throughout the summer, but I want you to get this picture. God is redemptive. God is redemptive. doesn't matter where you are in the Bible. He's always redemptive. If the language looks too harsh, it's because we probably don't understand the background setting. Yeah, 40 lashes looks hard and harsh until you realize the, the Egyptians and the Canaanites could deliver 200 lashes. It looks very different then. So when you begin to contrast what God was doing very slowly in culture, he's contrasting it with a world that is far more harsh than he is. So I think three things. This is what drives my Bible study all the time. This is how I know God is redemptive. Three things always happen when God steps into our world, when he puts that open hand out to us. Here are the three things. He restrains evil practices. So we've gone from 200 lashes and beatings and five open wounds down to 40. No more. Second thing he does is that he introduces human dignity. The reason why we do that, he said, because if you do that more, you're going to degrade your fellow Israelite in your eyes. Everywhere we look through through the laws of Leviticus, most people read, but when you start comparing the laws of Leviticus with the surrounding nations, you see dignity beginning to enter into the question and the equation of how we treat one another. Okay? My Bible study on Tuesday night, we're almost done with Leviticus. We're doing it a chapter at a time. And my group, I think, is pretty astonished at how much love and grace and dignity are flowing out of these rules because we can compare them with the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Hittites and the surrounding nations. So he restrains evil practices and behaviors. He introduces human dignity. And then what he does by doing that is he points the way. He helps us understand where that true north is. And that starts a trajectory in world history that ends up in a good place. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Do good to those that hate you. Boy, that's countercultural, isn't it? There's nothing in us that would do that naturally. That's just an example of it. And what he's doing at the same time, he's preparing the world for the Messiah. Okay, so what does this mean? I had Steve read Isaiah. I kind of took you to the end of the story so you could see where we're headed throughout the summer. Isaiah 65. uh, It's the next to the last chapter in the book of Isaiah, verse 17. You see, this is God speaking. (coughs) I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. And Jerusalem here is the, in, in this imagery, is the religious center of the world. This is God saying, I care about the whole world. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. This is a, pre, a, a glimpse, a precursor of what we're about as a church. We're to be a joy. 
We're to be a delight to whom? To our friends and neighbors. That's who. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and I will take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Okay, so what does all this mean? Let me just start with this idea because right now causes are all over social media. Uh, when, we, when we did our series earlier in the year and late last year, we did, um, um, excuse me, we, we talked about how the world organizes things around causes. And that's what we divide over. We have causes floating all around the media right now. But God's approach isn't to create causes. His approach is to create transformation. Transformation is significantly harder because that re- helps. That requires that people begin to change their mind. And they're not going to change their mind easily. It's just not going to happen. And so as a church, our focus should be transformation, not causes. The moment we put a cause in front of you, then we automatically divide. Automatically. And it's often as long religious grounds. People say, well, the Bible says this. The other side says, well, the Bible says this. I love the debate, but that's not what we're about. We're about transformation because of who we are. It's that open hand, if you will. God reaching out. Now he's reaching out through us. So we should remember that. Um, this is the world, what I just described from you. This is the, for you. This is the world that God chose to redeem. We have to remember that it's his creation. It's not ours. He loves it, which is why he doesn't abandon it. It's not a surprise that evil happens. Not in the fallen world, not to me. What's a surprise is that he demonstrates patience and redemption. That's a surprise. If you were the creator of the universe and you made everything, what would you do with what we have? The mess we've created. What would you do with it? So what we're seeing in the world right now is not new. It's not unique. The world has lots and lots of examples of these kinds of things. Even even the plague, I'm not going to get into the pandemic of how dangerous it is. There's all kinds of information out there. But I did sit down and, and uh, wrote my one of my children an email and said, this is now, according to the WHO, the sixth pandemic in my lifetime. And there's been lots of people that have died. That saddens me. I can't stop the pandemic, but I can help people with their fear. I can extend that grace. I can help people when they're, they can't pay their bills because they've lost their jobs. That's significant to me. That's transformation. What they do with it, they have a choice. Will they continue to say, I know better than God? So when this is all over and we've had our churches help them, will they come and say, teach me about this God? You showed me love. Or would they say, no, no, I'm okay now. I, I can do it myself. That's the pattern of the world. My prayer is that they'll do the reverse, that they'll come talk to us and say, who are you? Who are you? But along with the Bible and a history of the world full of all these tragedies, we also have numerous, numerous consistent examples of a God who intervenes with patience, redemption, and grace. Uh, It's his creation, and he loves it very much. I think this is why Christ came. To redeem a tired, evil, fallen, confused, self-centered, scared world. So throughout the rest of the summer, we're going to look in different aspects that the Bible exposes 
about how unique God is when he extends that hand. What does that look like? The other religions, philosophers, the other leaders and nations, they never get there. Father, thank you for giving us that hand, that grace. Thanks for reaching out to us and for loving us. And thanks for just never giving up on us. Um, We ask that you not give up on us because we still have lots of friends and neighbors that don't know you and we desire that they do. So please be patient and continue to work through us and around us. In your son's name, amen.